Welcome to the podcast, Life Lessons from Travels Off the Beaten Path. Hi, my name is Justine Murray, and I'm also known as Lighter Step Justine, as we strive to step lightly across the earth and only leave footprints. This podcast is about the life lessons I've learned as a traveler, particularly when I decided to step off the beaten path. Mostly this occurred in the non-digital era when there was no internet or mobile phones. My sometimes bizarre and always unforgettable adventures around the globe, often as a solo woman traveller, gave me great insight into living a fulfilled life, blessed with all my senses, to enjoy the wonders the world has to offer. From wildlife encounters, to midnight crashes, to dodging stalkers and trekking with tribes, to travelling with a child and around work commitments. I will entertain you with my stories and what each adventure has taught me, along with some general travel and life wisdom along the way. I also will be bringing in other travellers who can captivate us with their own travel stories and the life lessons they have learned. So tune in to me each week and let's get entertained with travel. Okay, welcome back. So the last episode, we were in Malawi in Cape McClare and I, that was over the Christmas New Year period uh, into 1995. Uh, and then after about 10 days, Errol, um, he's a South African guy, and I uh, decided to leave and go down to Mozambique. Uh, he told me that he has been given a job to go and move some uh, some cars out of Mozambique back to South Africa. So he wanted to go down and pick up that job. So we left Cape McClear and caught some minivans where we went all the way down through the south of Malari through Blantyre uh, and into Mozambique. Now, you've got to remember again, <laughs> It's Christmas, New Year period, so no banks open, so I still had no money, so I was still sort of relying on Errol. And we crossed into Mozambique and it was one of the most bizarre and crazy experiences in throughout my whole of Africa. Now, this is early 1995, so... Mozambique had just come out of a civil war between, which went from 1976 all the way to 1992, and it basically fell apart when uh, the Cold War stopped, basically, and they weren't getting the resources from Russia and South Africa, so uh, they ended up having peace talks in Rome, which led to the Rome General Peace Accords. And for the next two years, for 93, 94, the, they had a UN, uh, United Nations force come in to try and get the economy kick-started. And so the beginning of 995 was when the UN was, started, was pulling out of the country. And so this was a country that, really had not been, you know, been in civil war, there was still the after effects of it. So 
there was no tourism as such. There was it was a frontier country really. And it was like going into a country raw as one of the, the first tourists in or I would say a traveller in twenty five years. It was of course they had people going through like South Africans and Earl's telling me that a lot of people used to, if they were running from the law or running from Interpol would, from South Africa, they would actually go and hide out in Mozambique because they weren't chased into there. They, they didn't have any, um, you know, expedition treaties with Mozambique. So there was obviously white people there. There was obviously South African. It used to be an old Portuguese colony so there was people still living there but it was a it was a frontier country uh and so we we caught mini buses all the way down to our main stop was Biwa and we spent a few days there uh, I remember a a windmill beside the hotel and I remember the big beautiful old Portuguese buildings I mean most of the town the, the big towns all down Mozambique had you know beautiful old buildings uh, you know a few stories high uh, there was no windows in the buildings uh, you could see all the the bullet holes in the buildings was were there and basically they were derelict and so it was, it was really fascinating, but at the same time, a little bit, you know, scary in a way that this is, and, and, you know, confronting that this was the life that these people had lived for so long. You know, you, we went past many villages and, and people would still look at you very wary. Uh, I remember we were hitchhiking along at some stage along the road and we were picked up by a guy in a in a Land Rover and he turned out to be a guy that worked for the Halo Trust which was basically they were tasked to go looking for all the aren't uh, the hidden and unexploded landmines and designate detonate them so people obviously wouldn't accidentally land on them and this was quite a common occurrence that they would you'd, you'd often see kids and also adults with uh you know a missing part of a limb like a, a leg especially but, but potentially an arm and so because they've accidentally walked across a landmine and i this, this person was he was crazy he uh, he was extremely energetic but just crazy and you know if you're going around the country looking for unexploded landmines and destroying them I suppose you would be a little bit crazy anyway so I remember while we were in the town of Biwa and you know I still had no money and I remember Errol giving me 300 US dollars he told me they were fake I, I couldn't see the difference so it's, they're very good fakes that often turn up in Africa and you know three hundred dollar notes 
and he said just mind it just in case something happens you mind it and at least you got some money and so I didn't know what to do so I just stuck them in well how I normally carry big money and to hide it that I put it in a in a book in the pages of a book so that they uh don't you know who, who's gonna they break in and look through you know not many people are gonna go look thing, through a book and the money disappeared while we were there we were there for two three days and the money disappeared and I didn't know what to do. And so I, I told her, I said, look, the money's gone. And it was interesting to say, it was an interesting concept because he he was annoyed, but I don't think he was too annoyed because he, um, so I don't know, sure, I don't know sure if he actually took it back or not because he did see where I put the money. Anyway, but. He didn't tell me that he took it back. So then I thought, oh, my gosh, I owe this person $300. That looks like it's been stolen. But how is he to know? Does he does he know that it was actually stolen or does he think I actually took it and was pretending it was stolen? So I had this dilemma in my head because, you know, I was, I'm not used to relying on people and being dependent on someone. So that wasn't very helpful. And then we, we, we continued down the coast of Mozambique looking through these villages. I remember one stop we were there and there was a snakeskin hanging up for sale and it was a snakeskin of a python. And seriously, this snakeskin was enormous. It would have been at least at least five to six metres long. It was, it was hanging up on really in the high branches of a tree and it was still dragging on the ground. It And I, I got I got a picture taken of me beside it. Uh, I also remember as we were travelling down, I was feeling really sick all the time and I was throwing up. And so I thought I had malaria. And so I remember taking some anti-malaria because I wasn't on malarial tablets because I'd been in Africa for so long I'd been on them for the first three months religiously every day and I was starting to get hallucinations and you know a bit of a rapid heartbeat and all this so I actually got off I'd asked the expats where they you know what they did and they said oh they just took a like a a, a morning after pill a, a pill if they thought they had malaria and to to kill it in its tracks so I actually was carrying some of that. I wasn't on malarial protection. I obviously protected myself during the night, and you know, all through these Eastern Africa, it's it's uh, it's a malarial zone. This, especially in Malawi. So I thought I had malaria, and I took those tablets, but I was still pretty crook. Uh, we went down through and stopped at uh, Villancola on the coast, and it's. Yeah, that's beautiful, beautiful coastline. And remember, there's there's no development. It was just villages and old derelict buildings from the from the Portuguese. And the people were going about doing their stuff, but I couldn't I couldn't go to a bank or anything. There was no the banks were there, but they they had no money at all. It was just you couldn't get money out and. So I still had to rely on whatever I was given. 
we got to uh, the harbour in in this area, and there was some. And I remember spending time on the on the shoreline, on the coastline, and just looking at the fishermen. The fishermen would come in; they'd go out at night, and they'd come in, and they had their they the just like small boat small boat dows, but not quite as big as the ones in Zanzibar, and there was just so many and they were all just big tangle of sails. It was actually quite artistic to to see this and then there was uh, quite a few on the shoreline um, with kids playing in them and, and the, the fishermen actually mending their nets and, uh, you know, sorting out and drying their fish on the, on the sand. And so I watched that for quite a while and then one of the days, Errol was able to convince someone to, with a boat to take us out into one of the, there was two islands, two private islands on outside from Villincola. And so we, I, I'm not sure which island we went to because I didn't have maps then, but it was either, um, I think it was uh, Magaru. Um, there's also Benguera, but I remember when we arrived on the island and we, we pulled up and as soon as we pulled up, these security guards came running at us and they and they were in, in Portuguese at us and basically they were telling us we, they, we couldn't land here. It was a private island. We weren't allowed on the beach. And uh, Errol tried to argue them, but they they were really insistent we had to get off the island and so we went we we got off but then they snuck around to the other side of the island and we pulled up on the other side and and oh, the islands were stunningly beautiful I'm just looking at these islands going these are just a these are just going to be next time you come through here they're just going to be covered in resorts they were stunning the water was stunning beautiful crystal blue and just waiting, waiting to, to get, you know, it's, it's so close to South Africa. Why aren't they developed yet? It's all because of the war. Now the war's over. These are going to be full of people. And it was, you know, all, all these uh, developers waiting for these chances like this. Was this going to happen? And so we came back and then we kept going and we went through um in in ham in hambane i'm probably really really killing these names inamban <laughs> which is still for going further down the coast and you know, they i don't recall anything really special they were just all the same beautiful old tent, old buildings with bullet holes and you know, dusty, dusty dirt streets and beautiful shoreline with just fishing boats. And then we got down to Shai Shai and Shai, Shai Shai had this campsite and we stopped there and the time we stopped there we met a South African, two South Africans, one was handicapped he had the loss of his legs and he also had with him his um, 
his therapist, his physiotherapist had come with him and so they had come for a holiday. And so, you know, he had a great time there. They were there for the uh, like a long weekend and so we spent time with them. It was coming up to my birthday on the 26th of January. So Errol thought it'd be really good if we all, we all went out on the boat, one of the boats, the fishing boats, and do some deep sea fishing. And you know, catch some fish for my birthday, for my dinner. And I was a little bit nervous of this. I was a bit reluctant because, as I've mentioned before, I've nearly drowned before, so I was a bit nervous of powerful water. And this, the coastline is, the the waves were pretty big and rough and, and uh, I'd heard stories about it. And so we, we went, but I didn't say anything. We went towards the boat and we're just about to board the boat and we had the harbour master come down and he, he was adamant we weren't we couldn't go out, tourists weren't allowed out on the fishing boats. So I actually gave a sigh of relief to tell you the truth. I thank God I got out of that without looking like showing a weakness that I didn't want to go. Because uh, remember, I, was, I actually was still feeling sick and throwing up quite a bit. And so... But Errol was able to was allowed to go out, so he went out with the fishermen, and he was out there all day. And I just spent time at the campsite with the the physio and the the, the other lad. And when Errol came back, he had a um, he'd caught himself uh, caught a oh it was enormous. It was like at least uh, two and a half foot yellowfin tuna just the whole fish it was I was trying to hold it and I was trying to, and I was holding it up right next to my chest and it was just not touching the ground it was it was so big uh so what we did he said oh here's your dinner here's your birthday dinner so we we gutted it and then we filled the inside with a tomato and onion and a type of spinach and then we wrapped it up in banana leaf and then we put it in the coals of the fire oh it was the, one of the best fish ever it was so nice it was just succulent and beautiful you know we we managed to between the four of us demolish that that whole fish but it was just i remember it, it was just one of the best fish meals i've ever had in my life I, like i'm a vegetarian now i don't eat any meat or seafood but that I remember that as one of the best fish and and, and we'd only caught it um Errol said it was it was actually really hard to catch it uh and he said it was we're lucky we didn't go out because it was really rough out they often lose boats in the channel between Mozambique and Madagascar and he it was you know he said that the swell was so big and you know the rocking from because they're only little boats they're not big boats they're not like the boats you know the big fishing boats that you see in the western world these are only small fishing boats and you know, he said the rocking and the, that even he was feeling sick and he's got a you know nine cast stomach but um so i was actually even more glad i wasn't able to go and so it was a really pleasant day. And then there was a, there was in on the campsite, there was a pet monkey, a vervet monkey. So it came down and um, I was feeding it mango. 
and uh, it was sitting on my lap. I mean, I've got pictures of it sitting on my lap and, and just I, I seemed to attract animals. They, they used to just sit with me. Uh, and then Errol just said he had to go down to Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique, for a little while, and he, and he left me there. I didn't realise. He said it would only be a few days. He actually was um, away for 10 days. And that was okay. I, I said, I'll, find, I'll stay here. I don't mind sitting on the beach. I'm used to sitting on the beach by myself. Uh, by that time, the physio, the two South Africans had gone back home and I was at this campsite and so there's um there's a sort of like a, a bar down there at the at the end and then there's um you know I had the tent and we had some huts to sit in and and it was uh right up against it was right on the beach you just walked down to the beach and then um, there was like sand dunes straight afterwards, you know, grassy sand dunes. So I used to climb up there nearly every day and sit up there in the sand dunes and come down. Um, and I was, I was, because Errol only was going for a few days, he only left a little bit of food and I had no money. And suddenly I had no money to buy more food so I, I actually ran out of food so I was living on I basically I remember when I ran out I had enough to buy a loaf of bread and I was living on water that not even bottled water I had to drink local water because I just couldn't afford it and it was uh really really bad you know I I didn't know what to do I'm thinking what if Errol doesn't come back and what if um I couldn't pay for my camping and I was in that situation again it's like well there's no banks to get money do the only thing I've got of value is is my camera you know what can what in of course they wouldn't pay the sort of money and and I was talking to the locals that lived around here more the the expats from South Africa who were a bit uh, dodgy people and potentially con men running from Interpol, I wasn't really sure or not, but they were, they were a bit dodgy looking. And they were saying, oh, yeah, we'll come in the middle of the night and put you on our boat and we'll, and we'll take you out. And I'm just like, oh, okay, but I really don't want to rely on these people. And I was, oh, it was a mess. Uh, and not really sure what to do. And all the time still I was feeling sick and I'm thinking I either got malaria and now I'm not eating properly and I was I was a, a big mess. And then just when I thought I'm going to have to accept these this ride and, and be rest in, and be taken out by the boat and I but I didn't feel like I could trust these people even and they, and they just didn't feel trustworthy. And then Errol returned and. Oh, thank God. And, you know, he obviously brought food with him. I was able to eat again. And um, and even though, you know, he was continually trying to have a relationship with me, he still was a, a good guy and he's, I still felt safe with him because he never forced himself on me and he never, he, he looked after me. 
and then after that, you know, he paid the camp fees. We went down to Maputo for the for night, and he then uh, found a lift for me to go to uh, to go to um, South Africa. Uh, just go across the border to South Africa. And um, so he stayed in Mozambique and and I went off to South Africa. So what was my life lessons for my travels through Mozambique? Well, it was a frontier country. It, you know, it was still suffering from civil war not suffering, but the after effects, the aftermath of civil wars, you know, it was war torn. It was bullet holes everywhere in the buildings. There was no economy, no money. The banks had no money. Can you believe that? The, there was so much poverty and distrust in the people. You know, I saw the maimed people from the mines and you were too scared to walk anywhere because the potential there could be mines and, this was something that, you know, they weren't used to tourists, so they, you were watched and and there was no animosity towards me, but it was a, it was a country that was trying to heal and with no economy, no, I mean, they, they weren't starving as such. They had the fishing and they were trying to, obviously grow crops again but of course the crops um you had to watch out for landmines but and most of the travel we did was along the coastline so they reliant on the on the sea so they weren't as bad but it was quite eye-opening to see not just the the effects of the war and the you know the physical signs with all the bullet holes and no glass everywhere but just it was two years after the civil war it's after you un had pulled out and he's like well, how, how can the un pull out because the country still wasn't right there was no economy so how how can they how can they exist and there's still potential resentment between the sides there was still Obviously, there was poaching going on with the wildlife. There was much wildlife left because any time the animals going over to Mozambique, they would they would be killed just for food and or potentially land on landmines. It was um, it was a really interesting time to visit and something I don't think is. I mean, you'd never see this in a in a <laughs> tourist guide. It's something that's very rare to experience unless you're working for these foreign aid countries that come in to help. It's 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 not often experienced to to these sort of frontier places. Now, the period when I got stranded at Shy Shy with no money uh, and not sure what I was going to do. Um, I think 
that was some of the, some of the lowest days I've ever had in my life, in, in possibly the worst, because I've been homeless before and had things not turn out right. But this time I had nothing and I had no way of getting anything. I, I had no food or no water. I was drinking whatever the local tap in places where you're told never to drink that sort of stuff. And, and I was sick as a dog and I thought that's why I was sick. And I was living off bread. That's all I, I could afford to buy bread. There was no fruit that you could just get for free. Uh, and it was quite scary. You know, you, I think your body can go the one or two days without food, but not much more than that. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't escape. I couldn't get out of there because I had, you know, who, who, who would believe the Westerner had no money? They would think I'm, I'm lying. So I knew I probably had to run away or escape and and these dodgy looking people were off from the bar were offering to help me escape by you know on the boat in the middle of the night and and I but I just did not feel safe with them I didn't trust them I thought well especially if you're if you're hiding from Interpol or something like that I don't know if that was true or not but it was enough to get me a bit frightened and so it was one of the scariest times of my life and I mean little did I know then but I I, I actually was pregnant and <laughs> I didn't know that's why I was sick I had morning sickness every single day and here I wasn't even eating and uh, it, it was it was a, <laughs> it was a nightmare I don't know what Mozambique's like now I have read since it's had another resurgence of violence since that time uh since 2013 and it's only just finished or always still going so it probably the development hasn't the, oh, well from looking at google maps there's a hell of a lot more development uh along a lot more resorts for people to go not quite not to the standard of something like Zanzibar but there's a lot more resorts there was nothing there was one campsite and probably one guest house now there's a lot more places and but the islands don't look as developed I mean, there's a few lodgings to stay there but they don't look as developed as I thought they were and possibly because of the uh the internal conflict in Mozambique you know why would you put all that money in if if you could get kicked out of the country and you couldn't bring tourists in. Um, as far as Errol was concerned, I'd never heard from him again. Yes, he had some issues, but he really was a very kind-hearted man that helped me and took me all the way down and made sure I was safe back into South Africa, which at least had an economy, had banks, so I was able to get money out and made sure I wasn't stranded even though I got very close in the end but um, I managed to survive Mozambique it was it was an experience and a half but something I'm 
I'm really grateful I went through because it made me really appreciate how lucky we are and how we live and how we what we have we, we take freedom for granted we take uh, so much for granted in you know these sort of countries that you know, they never know when they're going to have an internal war and unfortunately the residents are the ones that pay they have massacres and they have forced marching and get forced into armies kids get forced to become soldiers and and then you got you know mines landmines everywhere so it's really it's so dangerous to walk anywhere but the only way to move in the country is to walk because you can't afford to own a car there's no there's no banks there's no money you know there's so much inflation with the with the their currency because it's all black market and yeah this is this is what they live through when they have these periods where you know all these things go wrong and you know I got to experience just a tiny portion of it where actually it was coming out of their trouble but they still had so much to go through so that when I went into South Africa I was blown away but I will talk about that in my next episode. Like always I want to leave you with a thought to consider. What is your environmental and cultural footprint when you travel? How are you showing up to the country and the culture you are showing up with to make a better interaction for all concerned? Leaving the environment as you found it, reducing your impact on local resources and cultures to come out with such a positive outlook for both the local population and environment and yourself. Okay, please follow my podcast if you're enjoying what you are hearing and share it to others so they too may be inspired. I'll catch you next time.